Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, March 2nd, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and this is Politico's Nerdcast. Big week wrapping up that we previewed for you last time out. Trump gave his first address to a joint session of Congress that Republicans hailed as a game changer for his presidency. And not 24 hours later, there we all were talking about Russia again. And meanwhile, some of Republicans' self-imposed deadlines for passing Obamacare are looming, and it's still not clear what the bill is going to look like. So we're going to talk about all that and more this week. We'll jump into data points in a second. But first, a couple quick housekeeping notes. Remember, please send us your questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews, if you have time, on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All right, here are the numbers that mattered this week. 4,983. That's the number of words in President Trump's speech before Congress Tuesday night, which the administration and its allies desperately hoped were a turning point for his young presidency, only to have the news cycle wrenched out of their grasp once again by stories regarding contact between Trump associates and Russia. The next data point, that's the number 36. That is the number of days before the internal deadline that some Republican leaders have set for passing Obamacare repeal. And our third data point, switching sides of the aisle, that's the number 235. That's the number of votes that former Labor Secretary Tom Perez got for DNC chair last weekend on the second ballot. All right, a lot to talk about as usual. And we have the same panel going tape to tape today. Senior politics editor Charlie Matessian, hello. Hi, Scott. Chief investigative reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hi. All right, let's jump into our first data point. That's 4,983. And that's the number of words in President Donald Trump's speech to Congress Tuesday night, which the administration and fellow Republicans are desperately hoping is a turning point for his young presidency. Though they have hoped for turning points before and been disappointed. And now, just today, we are seeing a big story breaking that Senator Jeff Sessions was, then Senator Jeff Sessions, was asked about any contacts he had with Russia during his confirmation hearing to be attorney general and said no. And now it's coming out that he met twice with the Russian ambassador during that time. So, uh, Charlie, impressions of of this week, of the speech, of the story that's coming out afterwards that stomped all over it, what are you thinking right now? Well, I have to say I thought it was a highly successful speech in political terms. Uh, I think, you know, it's been much lauded in the media and by Republicans and I think with with some reason. I have to admit, I was caught off guard by the tone and demeanor of that speech. Who would have guessed that Donald Trump would have been talking about uh, Black History Month, anti-Semitic incidents, education as the civil rights issue of our time, true love, the need to heal our divisions? Uh, I mean, after all, who's done more to accelerate and exacerbate those divisions than Donald Trump? So I was surprised by that. But I I think it's also important to put it in some context here, uh, which is that we are talking – he's being lauded for a speech because of its normalcy. He's being lauded and called – 
uh, normal and uh, he seems presidential. Like that is that is really the source of all of the praise he's getting, which tells you something about how we're defining deviancy down in in the Trump era. And uh, it's a little troubling on one hand that, that uh, you know, giving a normal speech is a, is a cause for uh, applause for Donald Trump. But at the same time, if you're looking at it in a purely political context, uh, it was very successful for him. Well, and it, it seemed like the, the most important part of that was that it reassured a lot of congressional Republicans who were growing increasingly antsy and nervous about – and not just Republicans in Congress, Republicans everywhere – about the president's tweeting and his administration's various issues over the first four or five weeks. And uh, all of a sudden – I mean they were, they were all incredibly happy after the speech, right, Nancy? Yeah, they were really happy. And I feel like they felt reassured that he could act presidential, as Charlie said, and that he could, you know, tone down some of the dark uh, rhetoric, which we really saw in his speech at the Republican National Convention and the inauguration where he was talking about American carnage. This was a much more uplifting, unifying speech. Um, However, you know, the glow didn't last that long. And, um, you know, yesterday on the Hill or Wednesday on the Hill, a bunch of Republicans got together to talk about Obamacare, which I know we're going to talk about later. And they still can't agree on anything, don't have a plan. These revelations came out, uh, you know, Wednesday night about uh, Attorney General Sessions and how he'd had conversations with the Russian ambassador. And so, you know, the speech definitely the tone gave it this real reset but it was real momentarily. And what the speech didn't deal with at all was any of the policy questions. The speech did not mention Russia at all. And now these policy questions and the Russia connection are just tripping the Trump administration up again. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget it's it's you know, he is getting a lot of praise, but uh, it is a low bar. He set a low bar. And so uh, he has cleared the bar. And, and I think uh you know, there's something to some of the Democratic criticism of the media, the suggestion that the media is, uh, has sort of bought into this low bar, has accepted this low bar is what he needs to clear. And so we're all declaring him presidential just, beca- just because he gave like what is, if you read on paper, a fairly pedestrian sort of, you know, normal pro forma speech, uh, you know, that, that uh, didn't have a lot, whole lot of specifics, didn't have a ton of uplifting rhetoric, but also didn't have a ton of the sort of flame throwing for which Donald Trump has become known. You know, what's interesting about the reaction is they were so pleased with it. And, and uh, uh, our colleagues at Playbook talked to Chris Ruddy, uh, the Newsmax CEO, who's a friend of Donald Trump's, who was in the Oval Office on Wednesday after the speech. And Trump kept talking about the speech, saying, many people are saying it's the best speech I ever gave. Well, again, with that low bar, it's not too hard. But I, I say that because the administration and the White House particularly, you know, they, they wanted to bask in this glow. And so they called off what had been a planned rollout of this, uh, you know, re- uh, revi- or, or sort of uh, tweaked executive order dealing with the travel from the, the predominantly Muslim countries because they wanted to, they wanted uh, to keep sort of, the news cycle. Yeah, going they didn't on. want to step on their own news. And now fast forward just a few hours after they would have probably unveiled that. And you have these uh, these two stories popping within uh, within an hour of each other in The Washington Post and The New York Times, respectively, about Jeff Sessions' contact with Russia and all that, all that positive news cycle completely lost. I mean, it's deja vu, right? How many times during the campaign were there moments when the press – uh, was reporting that this is the Trump pivot. This is w- what we've been waiting for. He's going to be more presidential. He's going to be more moderate. He's going to reach out. And 
they would last somewhere between 12 hours and and maybe a week at, at most. I think this version is a little bit more extreme, uh, both in the positive and the negative. You know, uh, Trump also tried to do a reset with uh, the announcement of Neil Gorsuch, his Supreme Court nominee, and that went well. Uh, you know, he also tried to do the reset when he gave that long, rambling, you know, 80-minute press conference. But this time, you know, he definitely had a very positive reset, but it was totally overshadowed by this Russia stuff. And this, the fact that, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, during his conference, Information hearing as attorney general misled or lied. I mean, I'm not sure sort of how we can characterize it yet to other senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee about his contact with Russia. That is a huge, huge revelation. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It's interesting. I do. I, I would like to put it in context. But first, let me just say on the, the idea of the pivot that, you know, this is something that Trump has has been was so effective at on his own during the campaign. That is that anytime there was a bad story, he would throw out something else that would immediately change the subject and we'd all be chasing that. It's a lot harder for him to control that type, this type of wild swings in the news cycle as president. And that's what we're seeing. I think no clearer evidence of that than, than this Russia story on the, on the actual substance of the story. Um, you know, I, I I don't think it's like super problematic that that Sessions met with uh, this Russian ambassador. It was his job. Like that's what he did. It's I, not he was his on the job. Armed Service Committee. Absolutely, is his job. If I mean, all these members uh, were. I mean, he met with like a, a number of other ambassadors. They sent out a list. He met with like twenty some ambassadors within like a span of a few weeks. He had met the very the day before with the Ukrainian ambassador, Russia's sort of. Uh, neighbor and foe to the West. And I was emailing just this morning with the with the uh, Ukrainian embassy and they said, yeah, he met and it's part of the normal course. Our ambassador met with Sessions, part of the normal course of the ambassador's duties and of a member of the Armed Service Committee's duties. Now, where it gets tricky is his response to Al Franken's question, uh, where, you know, he, he appeared to ask pretty specifically. I mean, he didn't actually, you know, I take that back. Uh, Franken didn't ask specifically. Franken just sort of laid out if it's found that that members of Donald Trump's team had met with uh, Rush, you know, the, the Russians during the campaign. Would you investigate? And he took the initiative to say he didn't he didn't have to go there. He took the initiative to say that he as a surrogate had not met with them. So you have a, a, another situation where the sort of cover up is worse than the crime. I could not disagree more with you on this. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Like part of your job as the armed services chair is to meet with ambassadors in the course of your work. But it's not the core of your work. He's not on foreign relations. Um, and here's the thing. OK, so let's just say part of – let's stipulate to the fact that part of his job is meeting ambassadors. The Russian ambassador twice in that period of time. And here's the other thing. I think it's pretty fair to say that at that point – what was it? A July meeting and a September meeting – Jeff Sessions was not really punching the clock in the Senate the way he might have earlier. He, he is a guy who had been in the Senate for two decades by then. He was totally bought into the Trump campaign. He was traveling with him extensively. He was one of the most best known surrogates for Donald Trump. He was appearing in all kinds of states uh, for Donald Trump. So it's not like he was really deeply engaged in the work of a senator on armed services, which is, you know, I, I don't mean to say that he wasn't doing his job, but, you know, he didn't have a lot of time to take meetings like that. But twice with a Russian ambassador, it just doesn't smell right. And then the other part of that, this that's so deeply troubling is he is not some businessman who does not operate 
you know, in the corridors of law or politics. He is a former federal prosecutor, a U.S. attorney who's been through many confirmation hearings himself. He knew exactly what he was doing when he said that he had no contact with the Russians. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I I agree with a number of things that you just said. I agree that it's unusual. Um, I agree that some of the circumstances, you know, sort of point to this, sort of point to this being outside the bounds of his, of his role at that time. Um, now, the other thing I would say that is unusual before I, before I get to the, uh, the, the, the but is that, you know, this is a guy, uh, Kislyak, the ambassador, the, the Russian ambassador of the U.S., who is widely seen in, in foreign policy circles as both a diplomat and sort of a spy. I mean, he is, that, that's how he's regarded. And the U.S. had, you know, very fraught relationships with Russia. And Russia was a very um, uh, sort of fraught, fraught issue during the campaign at that time when he was doing this. So I, I think that all those things are sort of unusual. That said, I think he could have answered, if he would have answered the question uh, and either answered it strictly within the four corners of Franken's question, which would not have required him to bring himself into it, that he would have been fine. And he, he could have even mentioned that he, I mean, I don't think he would have done this voluntarily, but he could have even mentioned that he himself had met with the Russian ambassador as part of his duties on the Armed Services Committee. It's the fact that he was not fully forthcoming to be charitable in that answer that I think has made this the story that it is. And I don't think, and to your point, that he knew exactly what he's doing. I don't think that he knew exactly what he's doing because I think it's so inexplicable the way that he fielded that question uh, that that it really raises questions about whether he had full recall of this, whether he knew that he was misleading or why he would even go there. We mentioned deja vu before. And again, you know, just like a few weeks ago, when you had Republicans on the Hill complaining about all these legislative priorities that they wanted to put forward, getting drowned out by stuff about former national security advisor Michael Flynn and connections between Trump's campaign and possible connections between Trump's campaign and uh, various Russians. Nancy, part of the point of the speech was to kind of refocus Republicans on this big, big legislative agenda that they want to move in uh, 2015. And here we are again. Exactly. And, you know, before the session story broke, uh, you know, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin went on CNBC yesterday and said, you know, we're going to do tax reform and it's not just going to be, you know, a proposal. We're going to have it signed, sealed and delivered by August recess. And so, you know, they have promised to do a budget in March. Uh, you know, Mnuchin is promising they're going to do tax reform. Um, and so, you know, all of these things, they keep uh you know, saying they're going to unveil in March, like a healthcare uh, package as well. And they keep getting uh, sidetracked by things like Russia ties or just other scandals. I, I think they've also kind of painted themselves into the corner a little bit with, with the Affordable Care Act. I mean, to, 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 to go out there time and again and say that this is your first priority, and you're going to get it done within a certain period of time. I mean, you don't have to look a whole lot further than President Obama to see how difficult and time-consuming it is to get health care through health care reforms, through major health care reforms, even when you have control of both bodies of Congress, as Obama did for at least the, the beginning of the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, uh, debate. And, and so 
uh, it's going to you know move everything back, and it's going to be that much harder. He's going to have to expend some serious political capital to get all these Republicans on the same page when, as our colleagues have reported, there are such key differences between Republicans about how w- w- with what to replace Obamacare. Well, that's a great point, Ken. That actually gets right into our next data point. I will say, just to your point, hearkening back to Obama, this also wouldn't be the first time we've seen a president give a well-regarded speech that totally fails to move the needle on some of his big policy priorities, right? Wasn't that that was one of the the stories of the Obama years? Uh, but with that, let's let's move on Ken's point with Obamacare. Let's move right into our second data point, and that's thirty six days. So that is the internal deadline from today that Republican leaders have set for passing Obamacare repeal. That's part of some uh, great reporting this week from our colleagues, Jen Habercorn, Burgess Everett, and uh, Adam Kankren. The problem, as their story notes, and as Ken just noted, there's still a lot of dissension among Republicans about what to do. So Nancy, for as well as Republicans think Trump did in his speech Tuesday night, this is a problem that he did not and maybe cannot solve for them. Where do we stand on the GOP's number one policy priority right now? Oh, it's just absolute chaos. Um, and I do sort of wonder, to, to uh, Ken's point about the political capital that they're going to have to expend on Obamacare, I do sort of wonder if the Trump administration will ultimately regret picking this as the first thing, even though it's popular with their base. Um, I mean, they kind of had to, to some extent, right? It's a, whether, whether you know, Trump certainly talked a lot about it during the campaign, but this is what Republicans in Congress have been talking about for six years since it was passed, since the Tea Party sort of shook the, the electoral landscape and ushered them uh, Republicans into the majority in the House back in 2010. You know, they had staked their claim to Obamacare. So in some ways, you know, it was Trump's independent initiative. But in other ways, it's one of the few places where Trump and the, the congressional Republicans actually do align sort of conceptually, obviously, what we're talking about is the devil being in the details. But isn't it clear that he doesn't care? I mean, that's my takeaway. (laughs) This really just doesn't animate him. When you hear him talk about Obamacare, it's not that he has real deep uh, problems with it. I mean, he uses the same terms all the time. It's a disaster. Like, I don't don't believe that he could literally have a conversation, uh, an extended conversation about what's wrong with uh, Obamacare. So to me... He talks about that because he has to. You know, it's not something that really means anything to him. He doesn't care, but they do. But congressional Republicans do care and they do care about the details. I fully agree. No matter what compromise plan they were able to come up with, he would happily sign it into law and say, look, a big win for him. You know, we repealed Obamacare and replaced it with Trump care. And it's amazing, you know, but – Uh, to get to that point is going to require a whole lot of horse training among people who do have very deeply held convictions and proposals and ideas that differ from one another about about how to solve this problem. Nancy? Yeah, and Trump even, you know, President Trump uh, in a meeting with the governors um, on Monday even made it clear how difficult health care is. He basically said, you know, I didn't realize that it was going to be this complicated. Who says that? And among people who have covered healthcare before, like myself, um, you know, or people that were Democrats who were involved in passing Obamacare, you know, there was just this like total 
or people who are alive in 2000. <laughs> yes. our, our colleagues actually at, at the Politico's video team put together a great short video, which I recommend to everyone, where they start with Trump <laughs> saying he didn't realize it was this complicated and then put together a montage of clips of Obama during the, the effort to pass the Affordable Care Act saying healthcare is extremely complex. <laughs> it's There's a lot of constituencies. There's a lot of moving parts. So it's like, who could have realized? I don't know. The guy whose name is on the bill that you're trying to repeal. But I don't understand. Yeah, how could any sentient businessman not recognize that, that healthcare is incredibly complex? Well, I think what they and, and just some of the points that Republicans are so divided on are just like the broad themes is that, you know, basically Republicans, uh, you know, some Republicans want to just repeal Obamacare and get rid of it immediately. But then there's other Republicans who are really worried about repealing it without a replacement plan and kind of leaving, you know, millions of people uninsured and looking like a heartless party. And so I feel like they're really trying to figure out, you know, sort of how you message that. But there's all these super wonky details about the tax credits and the subsidies. And, you know, should we keep, uh, you know, Medicaid was really expanded under the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of Republican governors really liked that because it gave them federal money for uh, expanded Including Medicaid. like uh, Mike Pence, former exactly. governor of Indiana. And, you know, all these questions about that. And that doesn't even get into all of the very entrenched, wealthy business interests that are part of healthcare, like the pharmaceutical companies, the hospitals, the doctors. These are really huge and powerful special interest groups. And, you know, maybe Trump is just now realizing how many people play a role in, in healthcare policy. And, and the complicated nature of it and, and sort of the unintended consequences that we've seen so much, uh, so vividly from the Affordable Care Act to the point where even Democrats acknowledge that there are problems with it that could be fixed, that need to be fixed. Uh, that all is going to be transposed onto Trump and the Republicans, no matter what they do, no matter what compromise the congressional Republicans come up with and Trump signs into law, Trump care is going to be a problem for them. I mean, it's even if he claims it as a victory, it's going to be a problem for them, whether it's in 2018 or 2020. Um, you know, that it's, it's, it's difficult and those difficulties end up being political. Those healthcare difficulties end up being political difficulties of the people who own the reform. But even the other policy priorities that they've talked about are encountering speed bumps. Like with tax reform, for instance, there's this huge brewing fight uh, over this border adjustability tax, which I know sounds completely boring and wonky, but it has divided. This the, is the nerd cast. It's a nerd cast. It's divided the business community. Everyone's hiring lobbyists up the wazoo to, you know, fight for pro tax against ta the tax. Um, and, you know, uh, the Koch brothers, Club for Growth, Heritage, you know, they're all coming out against this tax now. Paul Ryan wants it. It's already this divisive thing. And tax reform hasn't even really started yet. Yeah. And tax reform is the one that everyone says, oh, you should have just, you know, sidelined, backburnered uh, the Affordable Care Act for for a few months and done tax reform. Tax reform is a layup. Well, no, it's not. No way. Uh, and so you're going to see these issues sort of. Uh, manifest themselves, uh, you know, no matter no matter which issue it is, we're going to see these divisions within the congressional Republican conferences manifest themselves in a way that makes it difficult for Trump to put up wins on the board. Charlie, I think it's, I think it's time that uh, 
even this early in his administration, this early in the year, it's time to begin recognizing that this idea that there's going to be this ambitious policymaking uh, agenda, uh, it, it's a mirage. It's not going to happen uh, in part because of the difficulty of all of these really thorny issues, but also because of the discipline problem that the Trump administration has. We keep acting as if it's a surprise where he he has a moment, he pivots, he seems to be gaining traction, then it all falls into chaos again. This was the story of his campaign. It is the story of his nascent administration, it's going to continue. It's never going to stop. So they will never be able to get any momentum, the momentum necessary to pass complex legislation. They won't have the discipline to do it. They will get one or two things done, maybe at best. The question I have, though, is I feel like in terms of the optics of getting things done, uh, Trump has done a good job of, uh, you know, signing executive orders and, you know, meeting with business leaders and, you know, having CEOs in the White House and having photos taken of that and, you know, press pools. And so my question is, like, is that going to be enough for voters who live outside of D.C. who, you know, aren't sort of deep in the weeds of the problems that tax reform may encounter? Will that be enough to sell people on the fact that he's doing stuff, at least unilaterally? And will it give that impression um, or will, you know, this big policy agenda trip him up? And I'm not really sure yet. I think it might be enough. Uh, and we, we, we laugh and, and dismiss the optics of these kinds of things. But I, I think uh, – to our peril out there, think about what it probably looks like, all these White House meetings with CEOs and the idea that he is uh, counting all of these jobs individually. I mean, that was thought of as beneath presidents to be negotiating with CEOs or counting. No, this, this firm kept 800 jobs in the country. But I suspect it's playing a lot better outside of D.C. I mean, that he's really counting job by job how many he's saving. Whether it's true or not is an is a entirely different question. But I mean, optically, it's got to look great. And it sends a, a powerful message to the kinds of people who feel like they have really uh, paid the price and borne the brunt of globalism. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely something to it. And Trump has obviously proven himself a master of messaging and sort of taking an unconventional approach that's like outside of what we normally think of as traditional politics, where you make a promise and then you're looking at on the ledger about whether you have, you know, whether you have checked that off or not. Uh, that said, I do think that when he runs for reelection, uh, he's going to be held to account for a lot of these things. And I do think that Republicans are going to be held to account for a lot of these things. Some of them are pretty easy to look at, like the wall. Where's the wall? You can see that the wall's not there. In fact, uh, there's a great story. Reuters had a great story. They, they got an do internal document from the Department of Homeland Security that showed that the Trump administration has found about $20 million that they could put towards the building of this wall that's going to cost, you know, a whole lot, billions more uh, than that. That'll buy um, a gate. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> one little uh, right. gate. <laughs> exactly. Big, beautiful gate, though. I mean, the one the one point of comparison that I would make is to uh, the past two administrations. They're sort of like they're extremes of the way you can do this. You know, the Obama administration was criticized for being too deliberative and trying to court the you know Democrats in Congress too much. And that's what caused the Affordable Care Act to be delayed so much in its passage that really Obama ran out of political capital. He His honeymoon was expended, you know, going and handholding all these, you know, Max Baucus and Joe Lieberman over the, the public option. And, and it, it was the, also expended fighting for cap and trade. Also well, but that, but, but that, that actually didn't get through exactly. because so much of the political capital was spent on, on Obamacare. And then the other extreme, you see, George W. Bush just ran things through with this, you know, like weaponized, uh, you know, congressional operation with Denny Hastert, where they were just like jamming stuff through in like 
putting up all these points on the board on big things, big tax cut. You know, no matter what you think of these policies, he was getting them through. Did also outreach to uh, to Democrats on on things like No Child Left Behind with with Ted Kennedy. Uh, but Trump is at neither of those extremes. He's just trying to count victories in in little places where neither Bush nor Obama uh, would, would would consider uh, uh, like a major win. Ken, I want to jump back to the point you just made about the this again this different way that Trump is counting victories and how it relates to the more traditional politician promise versus result that we're talking about because this line really stuck out to me from Trump's speech this week. He said, tonight I am also calling on this Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare with reforms that expand choice, increase access, lower costs, and at the same time provide better health care. That is a daunting menu, right, Nancy? I mean, the it Obamacare has was passed with all these same goals. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the things that Republicans are talking about doing, you know, there's a House bill, a draft, of a leaked House bill that we got um, that our colleague Paul Demko got. Um, you know, a lot of these things show that uh, Republicans certainly have ideas for health care, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be cheaper. And if it is cheaper, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to cover people. Like more likely it will cover fewer people. It will, uh, you know, give less tax credits to poor people, greater tax credits to wealthy people. And so, you know, these are all the trade-offs that they're going to have to contend with. But that's that's a real ideal vision of uh, what the Republicans can actually accomplish and even just what the Republican policy proposals that are already out there actually do. I think it's interesting also at this point that since that that draft leaked that Paul got a hold of, we're reading stories that the the current version of the legislation that congressional Republicans are working on is does not exist in electronic form right now. It's being kept in a small number of printed copies that are being reviewed in reading rooms in the basement of the Capitol to in order to prevent damaging details potentially like these from getting out. Let's take a quick break right here for a message from our sponsor. Nerdcast is teaming up with podcasters all over the country to raise podcast awareness for an initiative called Hashtag Tripod. That's Tripod with a Y. You know we're big fans of data here at the Nerdcast, so here's another number. One. One out of five Americans listens to a podcast, and that's great, but we can do better. All this month, we want you to find one of those four Americans out of every five who doesn't listen to podcasts. A friend, a relative, the only cool coworker in your office... Find that person and explain to them slowly but gently what a podcast is, where to find one, and then how you listen to them. When you complete that mission, tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's hashtag T-R-Y pod. All right, now back to the show. All right, well, let's transition at this point from some of the divisions plaguing the Republican Party right now to some of the divisions plaguing their exiled opponents. Our third data point of today's episode is 235. That's the number of votes that former Labor Secretary Tom Perez got on the second ballot for DNC chair last weekend. So getting elected with 54% support over Congressman Keith Ellison. Charlie, so the, the Democratic Party now lives happily ever after, right, with their new chair installed and all, all party uh, fights forgotten. Exactly. Barack Obama's going to ride in on a white unicorn. Uh, the Democrats <laughs> are going to they're going to eat marshmallows and gummy bears until 2018 when they win back the House and the Senate. And then in 2020, Elizabeth Warren is going to ride <laughs> to the end of a rainbow made of Skittles into the White House. No, I mean, uh, you know, so they put a Band-Aid on 
on that wound. Uh, it, it was important for the party to come together and it's important to at least have a figurehead, uh, I think. And, um, you know, there was some tension there between the bar, uh, Bernie Sanders wing and the, the Clinton slash establishment slash Obama wing. Uh, it was close. It was resolved, I think. Um, and I think the most important takeaway that I had out of the, you know, the DNC meeting is that it answered a question. And the question was, uh, how strong is the Bernie Sanders wing and how dominant is it in the Democratic Party? And what we learned is that they're pretty darn strong, but still not strong enough to take over the party apparatus. And that was a valuable thing to learn about the party. I think the next issue to watch in the Democratic Party when you're talking about uh, where does it go from here or party unity, the next question to watch is what happens with these primary threats to red state Senate Democrats? I mean, are they going to ca- cannibalize themselves and go after people like Joe Manchin uh, and do what Republicans did to themselves beginning in 2010? Are they going to take down people or are they going to channel that energy elsewhere? I mean, I, I could easily see the former happening, that they're really going to sort of try to exact revenge because they they got – they feel like they got shafted in the inside game again, and that's not where their strength is. They got close, like you said. Uh, Keith Ellison was their guy, and he got close, but not close enough, and he got – uh, named as like the deputy, uh, is that right? That's for, right. For Perez and uh, – and and they felt like that was some kind of like patronizing. You know, I've heard several people say like, <laughs> they throw us this bone and they think that we're going to be satisfied and we're not satisfied. It's yet another case of the establishment, the centrist, third way, neoliberal, David Brock, Wall Street, Hillary Clinton, Democrats who are, uh, it, you know, turning their back on their populist base uh, and and that the base is extremely frustrated and they're looking for avenues to take that out on the on the party establishment uh and it's it's exactly the dilemma that as you alluded to that the the republicans faced in 2010 the energy was with the base the tea partiers how can you harness that in a way that helps the party and doesn't hamstring the party with candidates like christine o'donnell for instance um and uh, Sharon Angle. And, and uh, that's going to be the Democrats' dilemma, I think, going forward. There was a great YouTube video uh, recently. I don't know if any of you guys saw that story by uh, Gabe DiBenedetti uh, this week. It, it kind of it was, had only a fleeting appearance on the homepage. Uh, a great <laughs> frustration of mine. But uh, he did a small item about a YouTube video that was circulating of a uh, constituent meeting with Joe Manchin that was fascinating. Uh, and so I watched it all the way through and just ate up way too much time because it's like 40 minutes. You don't have to watch it all. But it's a fascinating uh, scene shot of what's happening in the Democratic Party. And and uh, without going into all the boring details, uh, apparently this group of uh, – progressive activists in a room in his office. He's in a car. They're having a big conference call with him. They are upset that he's not having a town hall and they want this very bad. Some of them are polite. Some of them are not so polite. Most of them are pretty nice. It's a it's a candid conversation that gets a little more heated and it just goes to show they're both talking over each other's heads. The, these, these constituents want a town hall desperately. Manchin, being an old school politician, uh, not being of a legislator's mindset, he's an executive, you know, he's a former governor. He wants to have a meeting. He, he wants to know what do you guys want? Uh, I'm willing to give you any time. How much time do you want? Let's meet. Let's figure out what you want and let's get it done. And they're like, no, we want to have a town hall. And he's like, 
I'm a, I'm a United States senator. We're talking on the phone right now, and let's schedule a meeting. And they're like, no, we want a town hall where we can air all our grievances and frustrations. And he's like, here's your chance. I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> and like, he, it's a good faith effort by both uh, parties. He, and Manchin even gets cut off in a tunnel, and then he calls them back. And he's, But finally, they push him over the edge. And the one guy, so Manchin then says to the one guy, uh, basically asks him, are you a Bernie person? And the guy says, yes. Uh, and so Manchin is very frustrated feels he's giving all this time to these people and wants to sit down and actually figure out what do they want and how he can get it to them. You know, he, he's a deal maker. He wants to think that way. And uh, then the guy pisses him off and then Manchin's like, well, you should primary me then. Uh, mm. Take take me on. That's the only way to, to resolve this. For. Yeah, it was. it's really fascinating. Um, you should take a look if you get a chance. Maybe if you spend less time watching that video and more time lobbying <laughs> the editors, you would have had uh, more time for Gabe's story on the homepage. <laughs> But this guy, I mean, Gabe has made the point that maybe Manchin wants a primary challenge even at, at some level just to prove to to prove that he's not owned, right? He has to run in uh, – again, we, we need to get that gong. But he's one of these 10 uh, Senate Democrats running in states that Trump carried in 2018 and none were carried by a greater margin than West Virginia. It's kind of hard to imagine that that Bill Clinton was winning it by lopsided margins just a couple decades ago, but here we are. And Manchin is trying to navigate all this now, w- both within the party and then within his state. It's a That's great- a super tricky needle to thread to get that primary challenge that you can withstand, despite the fact that the, the liberal base is what really you know, turns out in the primary, just so you can prove that the Republican, you know, in the, in the general election against the Republican, that you can answer the Republican's charge that you're a liberal. But if he could survive the primary, and I suspect he could, if he did, it would make him so much stronger in the general because West Virginia is about the most pro-Trump state or close to it in the entire nation. And can you imagine uh, Manchin uh, being forced on the defensive because it's because it could be all out-of-state money, all out-of-state liberal money, and it's just going to make him, uh, I think, a much more sympathetic character to West Virginians that are very fond of Donald Trump, and it's going to make him much stronger in the general election if he makes it through, and I suspect that he, he would. I mean, Manchin is not, he's not one of those senators or legislators who, you know, maybe was, went, summered in the state as a kid, or you know, grew up there and then went away to college and, you know, went to some elite college and never came back except when they wanted to run for office. Like he's a guy who's been there for a very long time. Uh, he's exceptionally good at retail politics. Uh, his ads, as everyone knows from the, the remember that famous rifle ad, his ads are very good. Like he's a guy who he, he shot a copy of the cap and trade bill, right? Yeah. One of the best ads in American political history. Speaking of the exam, the, the difficulty that Obama faced uh, with with the Democrats getting his agenda through. Yeah, I mean, just back to Manchin. I mean, I also feel like Manchin is really looking at expanding his base. You know, he was one of these uh, 10 senators or so, uh, Democratic senators that have met with Trump at the White House about the Supreme Court nomination. You know, he recently had, well, it was supposed to be off the record, but it leaked out, uh, you know, an off the record session with a Breitbart, you know, the conservative website writer. So I feel like he's really trying to... Um, you know, not just look to the Democrats and appease them, but, you know, really appear as uh, someone who's bipartisan. I think one of the reasons why folks like Manchin are getting so much flack right now is because Democratic activists, we've talked about this before, the opportunities for them to win in Congress are slim to none at this point. There was, uh, you know, the, the labor secretary nominee got uh, got withdrawn. But that had more to do with uh, a lack of support inside the Republican conference. And just the Democrats' numbers are such that they they can't 
they can't really bring anything home to the liberal base right now and it's getting more and more agitated and we're seeing stuff like these little blowups with Manchin and the you know the, the calls to primary Heidi Heitkamp or John Tester or these other red state Democrats without whom Democrats would be much further from 50 votes than they already are in, in the Senate right now. I don't understand how progressives cannot see how difficult it is. Because it's, oftentimes it is uh, – there are progressives in the state that are a little bit frustrated, but often it's it's driven by national interests. And I don't see how can they not comprehend or respect how hard it is for a Heidi Heitkamp or uh, a Joe Manchin to exist in those states. And, you know, wouldn't you rather have half a loaf than nothing? But, you know – Maybe that's why I'm not in politics and that's why I'm in journalism. Well, here's here's one area that definitely bears watching. We talked about it last week. We're going to keep talking about it for a while because things are really heating up there where Democrats are pouring a lot of energy in and starting to maybe see some glimmers of a return for it. There's a special election brewing right now in Georgia for Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price's old seat in the House. And just yesterday... Uh, the biggest Republican House super PAC, the Congressional Leadership Fund, pumped in over a million dollars attacking this Democrat, John Ossoff, who has ra- who himself has been minting small dollar donations online right now. And it, this is a seat that Mitt Romney carried by double digits, that John McCain carried by double digits, but that Donald Trump carried by fewer than two percentage points. And the fact that this big Republican PAC is getting involved, I think, speaks speaks to a little bit of one of the places where this Democratic energy is making Republicans a little nervous. I, I urge everyone to check out the particular ad that this super PAC released. This Democratic candidate is 30 years old. They've dug up... It, They've dug up YouTube clips of him performing with his college acapella group and dressing up as Han Solo for a spoof video that they made. Uh, I think this is something we're going to be seeing more and more as more millennials end up running for office, that their online lives in their their college years are out there for everyone to see uh, embarrassment be damned. Yeah, I think the next 30 years of political ads are, are going to be awesome. It's going to, you know, you're not going to see things like, you know, Daisy ads and, and those sorts of things anymore. You're going to see raw video from frat parties and people doing really ignorant things. And uh, it's going to be social media. It's going to be their tweets. All of that's being cataloged. And, it, and it's really going to change sort of the nature of campaigning. And I think it's in some ways we're already seeing that because we're, we're seeing people get elected and overcoming things that used to be uh, you know, third rail, uh, Trump. personal issues. Well, Trump, yeah. I mean, remember like how funny it was. I, re- I remember, you know, when I was a young reporter, the uh, who who was the uh, the nominee who got in trouble for smoking marijuana once. And when I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and didn't inhale, and never tried it again. It's ludicrous to think like things like that actually took pe- took people down before. Yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna have to rethink. Uh, sort of all the criteria that we use to assess viability of candidates, particularly at the presidential level, but maybe all the way down ballot. You know, everyone's laughing uh, this week when Oprah gave an interview where she she seemed to suggest an, uh, a potential willingness to consider running for president. I didn't actually interpret her comments that way at all. But look, if she were to want to run, we couldn't be so quick to be like, oh, come on, it's Oprah. She's not, she has no chance. That's an interesting point, uh, the Oprah point, and uh, and I mean and I mean that seriously. I, I know you're looking at me like what? 
there are a number of folks, and it's not just because of the uh, what Trump was able to accomplish. I think it's just changes in the political eco, political ecosystem. Uh, a number of f- non-traditional candidates are beginning to look at 2020. It's not just Oprah. It's uh, did you see the float uh, from the Disney uh, chair? Uh, I don't take that really seriously, but there's no reason why he couldn't do it. Uh, you're also hearing people talk about Mark Cuban. Uh, you're hearing people talk about Tom Steyer, the uh, hedge fund billionaire. I think you're seeing lots of folks uh, are now looking at n- national runs, and they'll be considered uh, as a, they'll be considered more viable than they ever would have been. And there's no reason to think that uh, the right person couldn't carve out a path. That's a great point, Charlie. It's going to be something. Uh, well worth keeping an eye on. It's going to be something difficult to cover, too, but we'll we'll do our best. Hopefully uh, we'll do it from this fancy pants studio. Too. Yeah, this is really great. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Ken, as always, thank you. Fun time as always. Nancy, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Remember, please send in your questions, if you have them, to nerdcast at politico.com. And if uh, you're still listening, I have a feeling you probably enjoy the Nerdcast, so please remember to subscribe Rate us and even write a written review if you have time on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just a couple more thank yous before we say goodbye for the week. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.